0: 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul is writing, and for a fair bit in this book, which is not a long book, he's, he's been warning and, and exhorting Timothy on the theme of honor and what a major role honor plays inside the church, even going so far as to talk about providing financially for widows and elders who are serving the church as honor. So this is this is a theme that he hits on in several different ways throughout the book. And then he warns Timothy and he warns us not to cover over the sins of those that have positions of honor, right? Not to cover over the sin of... Uh, of our elders, out of some sort of misunderstood idea of honor, which of course is our temptation as cultures is to totally reject honor and say, you know, I I have no patience for old people and I have no patience for, for people who are in positions. I, I treat everybody the same, this radical kind of egalitarianism that has no honor. right? And on the other hand then, To, to say, well, I must honor my parents, I must honor those who have gone before me, and then therefore to refuse to acknowledge the sin that exists even in those who hold positions of honor, right? So we always want to go one of, we we always want to go to these extremes, either there is no honor or honor prevents me from having any kind of honesty. And both of those are wrong, and Paul has, Paul has exhorted us and through uh, through writing to Timothy. He then goes on to apply the concept of honor further, and this is what we saw last week where he speaks on the necessity of slaves honoring their masters, something that is Shocking to us today, right? And he warns, finally, that those who won't agree with these things are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, whoa, we're talking that what's at stake here under how we understand and how we apply this concept of honor, uh, both in the church and in families, and then out into the world and our working relationships, including even so far as slavery, right? That what's at stake here is actually the gospel itself. Now in the same breath, right as he finishes that, he turns to the subject of money. And he accuses the teachers who rejects what he's just been saying about honor, he accuses those who reject that of being out for personal financial gain. Okay? Now, we've already talked about money several times because he's talked about the necessity of providing for, financially, elders who rule well. Right? Those who work hard at teaching and preaching. He's talked about... The financial benefit that accrues to the masters by the work of the slave, and how that works with honor. He's talked about it uh, even in the the necessity of the church giving uh, financial assistance to widows, right? So he's applied. He's talked about money several times and in several different circumstances, and he comes back to it at the end, and he says that people who reject what he's just been saying about the necessity of honoring those who are in positions of honor, honoring those who are doing honorable work, okay? Those who reject this are out for personal financial gain. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what we would naturally suspect, unless we have the discernment that he is using, okay? And I, and I want us to, just even before we read our text, recognize how opposite this is of what we would expect, what we would suspect. It's easy to assume that leaders who speak about the necessity of honoring leaders with money, okay, you follow? Leaders are talking, and they talk about the necessity of honoring leaders, that sounds very self-serving, right? And not just the necessity of honoring leaders, but honoring leaders with financial benefit, right? This is this is like you you should have been trained as from, from the time you were little to like have alarm bells going off. Whoop, 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 you know. The guy's talking about what would benefit him. We can't trust him, right? But what Paul does is he flips it on its head and he says, anybody who rejects these things is actually the one who's out for personal gain. Okay? Anyone who rejects these things is the one who is actually out for financial gain. This applies to regular church members who aren't in positions of honor, right? If you reject this, forget whether, you know, you're just just a random person and and you're not in any kind of position that Paul's been talking about here that that receives honor. And I I just want you to think and, and be able to see, even before we get started, how true what Paul says is. I'm saying now you need to honor those who are in positions of authority, you need to honor those who are in positions of honor, and you need to provide for them financially, and you say, I don't think I buy that. Okay, If you say, I don't think I buy that, one of the prime motivations that you have for not buying that is that then you don't have to give your money. Right? And so this is one of the ways that what Paul says is true when he says that actually those who reject these things are out for their own financial gain. If you're not a leader and you reject these things, you're just as suspect, right? We ought to be able to, if we can look at the leader saying, hey, you know, there's a necessity of providing financially for leaders, and say, that's a conflict of interest, right? we also ought to be able to look at the person sitting in the pews who's being told to give and saying, nah, I don't think so, and say, there is equally a conflict of interest there, right? (laughs) Because they're able to protect their own money and say, nah, I'm going to keep it all for myself, thank you very much. So, insofar as money is, you know, a zero-sum game, either you have it or somebody else has it, both people talking about where it should go have conflicts of interest at the core. So this is why it matters that we be, that, that we be taught on these things, because otherwise we're just left up to our own, our own uh, random thoughts that basically flow like water does downhill to us assuming that we deserve all of the money. Because, after all, we want all of the money. <clears throat> but it doesn't just apply to regular church members. Paul actually is not primarily talking to you guys about rejecting this. He's talking about leaders, teachers, who reject these things. And what, he, what he's talking about is people who make a show of denying the need for honor. Those who make a show of denying the need for any kind of honor to any position of honor, all right, those are the people who are seeking to manipulate you into benefiting themselves, it is simply a manipulation and it is at the cost of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we saw last week so we've seen in the past in this book the necessity of judging motives and that's what we get into again today because it's like who has pure motives who who deserves the money is is one thing you know and he's been talking about honor and so forth but But he goes beyond that and he says, you know, really, what's driving us? What's driving leaders? Where do these desires come from? Where do these arguments come from? And he gives a real particular example. He says, godliness with contentment is pure in motive. Godliness with contentment, and he's talking about money, is has pure motives. But godliness, which we'll put in quotes, right? Godliness that's motivated by discontentment and seeking gain is not true godliness. It has bad motives. So that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to be looking at that question. We're looking at the question of contentment with regard to money in particular, and how godliness is or isn't a means of gain. And who, who is gaining and who isn't gaining, really. So please stand for the reading of God's Word from 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 3, going through verse 10. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind And deprived of the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain. When accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering. With these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the love of money leads to false godliness rather than true godliness. The love of money leads to false godliness rather than true godliness. So, just take as an example the this this love of money. Uh, Where, where Paul starts with, and I was, I was talking about this right before we read the text, where, what Paul starts from is that it is a false kind of godliness that denies the necessity of honoring faithful men and women who have sacrificed for the kingdom, who have given themselves in service to the work of building up Christ's church. All right, Why do people do that? Well, Paul has said it's so that people will like them better and support them instead. That's the gist of what he's saying. You know, that, that they're rejecting this, and it leads into all kinds of conflict. It leads, it's motivated by all kinds of evil desires. And in the end, they think that it's a means of gain. That them, setting themselves up as this humble person who, who never talks about the necessity of honoring those who have given to the church, you know, that makes everybody like you, except for the people who have served the church honorably. It makes everybody like you because it says, oh, you guys remember uh, the end of the, the Lord of the Rings Everything's right in the world and, and the, uh, the hobbits come before the king, the king of the land. Maybe you guys don't, don't remember. The, but one of the things that stood out to me in the movies compared to the books, as I, I read the books and I watched the movies, was that uh, there, was, there was a rejection of honor on the part of the king at the end of the movies. People come and bow down, and, and he's like, oh, no, 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 no bowing down to the king. And of course, in America today, that makes everybody like you. Yeah, yeah, there's everybody's just equal. There's no bowing down to kings, right? There's no honoring the position of honor. And, and there's a reason that it was done that way in the movies for Americans, right? It's because we like it that way. And we'll give people money who tell us that we don't have to honor them. And so what did we do? We gave Peter Jackson and the the movie studios millions and millions and millions of dollars for them to tell us, you don't bow to anybody, right? And this is what Paul's saying. This is just one of the examples of it playing out in our world, how people who tell us no need to honor no need to honor those who are honorable. No need to honor positions that are honorable or, or authority or anything like that. It's just, it's just the most obvious thing in the world that those who do that are looking for something from you. They are flattering you, right? In the book of Acts, Peter uh is preaching and he, he, he begins to uh, interact with a group of people that have not received the Holy Spirit and he, he lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit and a man who has become a Christian not that long earlier named Simon Magus, Simon Magus sees this And it's amazing. It is truly an astonishing thing that has happened. And and Simon comes to Peter and he says, here's some money, give me the power to do this. Right? Give me the power to do this. And Peter's answer to Simon is, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And so this is an example of the kinds of things that happen when we we suddenly have a realization that money cannot buy what we're really looking for. Even if we think it can... We come up against this hard wall where all of a sudden somebody says, basically, to hell with you and your money. May your silver perish with you. What's going to happen there? Well, we call the, uh, the practice of trying to buy and sell religious positions simony after this man, Simon Magus. Okay? Now, here, 2,000 years later, Simon's name is associated with this wickedness that he had of thinking that money could buy more than money can buy. You have no part or portion in this matter. Now, why would people try to buy and sell religious positions? They come with honor. They come with a living oftentimes, right? And so there's there's real benefits to having these kinds of positions, and they're all earthly. They're all uh, financial when we do not have true godliness, when we are out to get gain, through godliness, right? And this is this is exactly what uh, if you've if you've ever um, if you've ever read Pride and Prejudice or watched the movies, you know how the, there are these uh, there are these men who are uh, Mr. Collins, for example, who have these positions. Who they are? They're, they're pastors, right? But but there's talk about how they, the positions can be can be bought and sold and can be given to people. You can inherit it at, from a man and his inheritance, right? And this is simony. Now that's back in England only a couple of hundred years ago, right? But this sort of thing still happens today in America. We've taken uh, we've taken financial and economic endeavors, and, and we've really ramped them up to the next level in in our seeking after capitalism. Okay, and so uh, we we were very good at at tricking ourselves and tricking other people about what we're actually doing so i don 't want you may not have ever heard of people buying and selling positions in a church today, all right but I, what I do want you to see is that this sort of thing still happens and it's, and it happens here and if there was any place where you would expect it to happen, it is in America where there is more money than there has ever been in any other nation right and so if money is that central if that if it 's that Abundant, and if it's that central to our life and our lifestyles, okay, then we shouldn't assume oh well, that's absurd, nobody would do that here today because it does happen now the way it happens like i said we've we've been very good at camouflaging things we've been very good at 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 making them look a certain way, making them look good and holy and true <clears throat> uh, but the way that it happens is uh it's through mutual back scratching societies. Okay, so you play good, you play nice with the people who have the ability to raise up your book and promote it, and you get book sales, right? And this is why it was a real problem when one pastor out on the West Coast uh, in the x 29 network, okay, it, it came out that he had bought positioning on the New York Times bestseller list. Okay? What's going on there? He's writing Christian books. I mean, after all, isn't it good for them to get wider distribution? Wouldn't it be good for more people to read these good books. It makes sense, right? Well, it makes sense in exactly the same way that it would be good for Simon Magus to be able to go around giving out the power of the Holy Spirit. After all, more people with the Holy Spirit, right? You see? There's no justifying ungodliness on the basis of Good coming from it. God, you know, godliness coming from it. Especially when you see that actually at the root, the desire is to be able to benefit, to gain yourself. And that's what's going on when somebody buys a position to, to, to jumpstart their book selling career and makes nice with all of the guys that they don't actually agree with to get them to promote their books and so on and so forth, right? You see how corrupting that sort of thing is. We certainly understand the problems with it in government, and yet it happens all the time, in the federal government especially, right? Buying and selling positions on committees, right? You know how this works, right? buy and sell, you got to pay a certain amount to the, and, and you got to raise a certain amount to, to, to contribute to the Republican you know, through these. And how do you get all of that? Well, you get it all through the people who are in, what's that? Lobbyists, Lobbyists yes. The people who are in Washington, D.C. in order to get their thing. And so, and so the whole system is corrupt. And, and we, just have to, we just have to take that and, and recognize it, and not, and not grow hopeless, and not think, oh well, you know, everybody in any kind of position of honor, anyone who's been ever given any kind of authority, you know, they're corrupt, and so, no money for, for anybody, no honor for anybody. That's not what Paul is going for here, because he's just gotten done spending a whole chapter talking about, two chapters, talking about the necessity of honoring appropriately. So how are we supposed to make all of this work? If you've just got these conflicts of interest over money, you know, you want you you have money and you want to keep it. And you have money and I want it because it's the only way I'm going to get paid as a pastor, right? And so, I mean, it's just sort of this like, hey, you know, how are we going to figure this out? How are we going to work it out? Well, what Paul immediately begins to turn to, aside from talking first about the necessity of simply honoring those who work hard at preaching and teaching, he then turns to contentment. And remember, he's talking to Timothy and to the leaders first about contentment. So I want you to see this first applying to me and then to you. But definitely not Applying first to me and then never making it to you. <laughs> okay? Because Paul is, is advocating for contentment for all of us. Contentment is what we are to seek. Content is what we are to be. And it brings great gain to us with godliness. Now partly what Paul means by the gain that we receive is that we avoid all of the negatives that he's about to go into. Remember the list of terrible things that happen to those who are seeking after love and and loving money, right? You avoid all of those things, that's a real benefit. That's gain, to not have to go through all of those things, right? But beyond that, partly, he means the gain that allows us to look at everything we receive, and is there anything that you have that you have not received from God, is what he asks elsewhere, right? And of course the answer is, no, everything I have, I've received from him. And you may think, well, I worked hard for that. And I say, and who gave you the ability to work hard for that? God, nothing that you have is not a gift from him. You have received it all. And so, partly what Paul is talking about is he's talking about the ability to look at everything that we have received through the lens of gratitude rather than it never being enough. And so, in a sense, the gain that you receive from godliness when it's accompanied by contentment The gain that you receive is contentment. Is it joyful to be content with what you have? What happiness to to simply be able to sit there and say, I'm happy I have what I have and I don't need anything else than what I have right here. And it doesn't matter how much you have. And and this is where we immediately run into trouble, because we're like, well, I could do that if I had what he has. Right? (laughs) I could do that if I just had X amount more. You fill in the blank for whatever X amount more is for you. But, right, you know, you can always picture a place where you think that you would be able to do that. But what Paul puts it back to is... With these, we will be content. And what were those things? That's right, covering and food. And so can you sit there when you have food and covering and say, I'm happy I have food and covering. I'm thankful I have food and covering. I'm content. I'm 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 grateful that God has given me this. Now, if you can do that, I tell you, you have received gain. You have a gift. There's nothing more wonderful than being able to do that, because the alternate the the, the alternate reality is one where you can never say I've had enough. You can never say. I'm happy, and what a sad life it is. Big things like hurricanes tend to remind us of this, right You know, even if you don't go through the hurricane, you see the footage and you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm not going through that is the first thing you know if you're not there, but then you see the The news stories and the newscasters love to make drama out of less drama than is really there right i mean <laughs> and i and you probably saw the little clip of the the guy pretending to be like blown away by the wind with two guys strolling walking by on short and shorts behind him like there's no big deal if you didn't see it. Go look it up. It's pretty funny. Newscasters love to make a big deal out of things that aren't as big a deal. But even so, you see big deals when there are big floods, when there are big storms. You see big deals because people lose everything, right? Their houses are destroyed. You see sometimes people being rescued off of their roof. And it's like, you know there's nothing left of their stuff. The house is gone. The car is gone. It's like country music. Everything's gone. And they they're rescued and then the news the news is interviewing them, right? And you you see different responses from people, but I, but one of the things that you see over and over again is how people are happy at those times. And if you're not the one going through it, then you then oftentimes what happens is you look at it and you're like, man, I can't I I don't know how they can be so happy right now, I would be absolutely out of control, angry, freaking out, whatever, and and yet they're happy. And why are they happy and you wouldn't be able to be happy in your own mind? The reason they're happy is because they they have been forced to grapple with what is important in life, right? Every inch that the water rises... You know, it's like, well, you know, okay, we're going to have to put new carpet in the basement, but at least we'll be able to keep the big screen TV and the entertainment system. I raised the DVD player up onto the shelf. We'll be able to keep all of that. And the and the water rises, you know. And, and they're like, well, you know, there goes the entertainment system. But at least we're going to be able to keep... And what's what's important to you of your physical belongings that you've been given? What, what is important to you? What could you not be content without? That's really the question. What could you not be content without? And as the water rises and, and that's taken away, then you reevaluate, don't you? I guess in the end, you're happy that you're alive, and then you're happy at the end that you've been rescued, and that you're sitting there underneath a shelter eating a warm meal, aren't you? You see how that happens? And all of a sudden, people are like, they're happy to have shelter and food. And that's what Paul's talking about. And he says, we will be content with these things. Elsewhere, Paul talks about how he has learned to be content with a lot And he has learned to be content with a little. And I want you to realize that learning to be content with a little might actually be a little bit easier than learning to be content with a lot. You see how many people are, have it all taken away and you see them on the news and they're just, they're just happy to be there they're happy to be alive they're happy to have food they're happy to have clothing they're happy to have relatives that they're going to be able to get to lord willing someday soon you know to go stay with or maybe they don't even have that but but they have had everything taken away and suddenly they've learned contentment but then we watch it on tv and we think i have a lot and i'm not content I have a lot, and I, and I haven't had it all taken away, and I'm still not happy. What are the dangers of discontentment? What are the dangers of wanting to get rich? Now, I want, you to, I want to stop right here and say, first of all, being rich... Comes with its own dangers. That's what I've just been, that's what I've just gotten done saying. Like, you know, you already have, you still have everything. You haven't lost it all in the storm, the hurricane, the tornado, the fire, whatever it is. You haven't lost it all. You're still rich. That comes with its own particular temptations. Like trusting our money to keep us secure rather than God. But your money can never keep you secure. Money can only ever give you the illusion of security. I've talked also before about how those uh, who are wealthy don't want people coming into their life and seeing what it's really like. Money gives you the ability to buy camouflage for your sins, so you so so you can you can buy a nice you know buffer zone, a, a protection area, so that people don't ever have to get near enough to you to see what you're really like. This is one of the this is one of the dangers that comes with being rich. The poor people don't have any money to to do that. They don't have any time to put forward to doing that. And they've realized the pointlessness of it. And so their sins are just right out there in front of you for you to see. And I remember being at an inner city church with a man preaching through the Ten Commandments and he was talking to a group that was, well, let's just say they had their services at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because nobody would have been out of bed for a 10 o'clock service. In their neighborhood, okay, and I remember so so everybody there was well, let's just say that when you walked onto the stairs up to the it smelled like cigarette smoke and alcohol going into the building. It was a poor community, and their sins were right out there in front of you you for, for everybody to see. And I remember the pastor preaching and I remember him talking about how he's talking to the poor people, right? And he says, you poor people love to talk about the greed of the rich people. And you're greedy. You poor people that don't have any money, you are greedy. And I just thought, Yeah, we both look down on each other, don't we? The rich look down on the poor. Why? Why do the rich look down on the poor? The rich look down on the poor because they're undisciplined. They don't work consistent jobs. They're not careful with their money. And they essentially deserve what they've gotten right and why do the poor look down on the rich for being greedy for being lazy ultimately the sins that we see in each other are awfully similar you know they didn't have to work for that they just it takes money to make money and they got a better start Being rich comes with its own particular temptations. But plenty of rich people are discontent with how much money they have. And that's one of the indications of how dangerous the love of money really is. It's the start of a path that doesn't have any end. Right? I mean, is there ever a time when you get to the end of the path? With loving money where you've where you've, you've can't say it where you've arrived, well, you might say, sure, you know Jeff Bezos has arrived at the end of the path he's giving away billions he sets up you know rocket spaceship companies and Just does whatever he wants. Got so much money, he doesn't know what to do with it. Bill Gates arrived. He he set up a foundation, and they give away billions and billions of dollars. I say, you know, the interesting thing about rich people is how many of them have started rocket space exploration companies. And I think there's something to this, okay? Okay. Bear with me. You you get as much money as you can possibly fathom in the world. In fact, more money, really, than you can fathom, because I guarantee none of you in here can fathom $1 billion, much less $2 Okay, You get to the point where you have so much money that it is entirely meaningless, and, and more means nothing to you. And what do you come to the end of? Have you reached the end of the path? You have searched in your longing for money. And you've come to the end, such as it is, and you find that you, there is no meaning there. And so you, you think, you know what I should do? I should go out into space and see if I can find meaning there. Let's see if I can be the first one to establish a colony on Mars. We're going we're gonna to build a tower up into the heavens. And make sure that we're never that that, that nothing ever happens that could put an end to humanity. We'll make sure that when an asteroid comes or when the aliens come for us or whatever in the world they're worried about happening, that you know, and, and really it's of course it's not anything like that. It's always that when we destroy the world through our own abuse of natural resources, right? We will have made sure that we have established ourselves. Elsewhere and are spreading throughout the galaxy and into the outermost reaches of the universe. This is this is the goal. If you read, it really is. And you want to talk about this is absurd. This is what coming to the end of the path with with getting wealthy leads you to. No, that path, it doesn't have any end. You don't love money until you have it. You love money and you keep loving money the more you get it. It is God's mercy to many of us that he does not let us grow rich. Proverbs 38 and 9 says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. You notice how much that sounds like being content with food and covering. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And that's what these men have done in saying that mankind is the Lord and that their wealth will establish a name for them. They have denied God in their fullness and said, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither riches nor poverty, is what the Proverbs say. the dangers of wanting to get rich are always there for you. And and they really don't end even if you already have plenty of money. But especially if you're poor, you better watch out. Get-rich-quick schemes are always running around, catching people, and plunging them into ruin. Think about gambling. How many people are destroyed financially? How many lives are ruined through gambling each year? And what's the goal? The the goal is, I want to to have more money. I'm not content with what I have. I I want to earn it. No, I don't want to earn it, actually. I want it to just come to me. I want it to come easy. I want it to come quick. How many How many rich people have been taken into schemes like this? Right? How many rich people have fallen to Ponzi schemes? In fact, it's the rich who have lost more than anybody else if you're just measuring the dollars to this sort of scheme, right, but like I said it's particularly dangerous to the poor because you don't have anything to mess with so here we are you get you you get to the end, and what does he say he says. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Longing for money is that desire to get rich. And then he talks about not just longing for money, that desire to get rich, but he then talks about the love of money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, what sorts of things come out of loving money? He says all sorts of evil, right? Right? So can can we think of any examples of how loving money leads into other evils? Loving money will make you lie. Loving money will make you cheat. Loving money will make you steal. Loving money has led many, many women into adulterous relationships, has, has led them for seeking promotions into all sorts of sexual immorality and allowing themselves to be pierced through with many griefs, right? The love of money, really, you could go on, for hours talking about the stories of how the love of money has led into destructive scenarios, the many griefs that have, that have pierced people. But he goes beyond that. He's not saying, by the way, don't ever, don't ever fall into the error of thinking that everything bad in the world starts with that root, the love of money. He's just saying there is really no kind of evil that doesn't come about when we fall into this. The love of money. You can go down the list of all the commands, and, and, and they're all you can find flowing out of starting from the love of money. But you can also start with, uh, with lust and make it into every other kind of sin, right? So, longing for money is just like longing for a wife. Longing for money is just like longing for children or any number of other things that are good in and of themselves, but that God has not seen fit to give to you. The moment that you long for them greater than you long for God. You are on the path to destruction. And he not only says that it's a path of destruction, he says Christians have longed for it and done many terribly foolish things to the harm and ultimately to the destruction of their souls. Contentment is the antidote. Contentment is the antidote. It makes your godliness into true gain. You can do all of the godly things in the world, but if you are not content in them, if you are not content in what you've been given, it will be of no benefit to you. You will not be happy But more than that, you are on the path that leads towards destruction. Contentment is the antidote. It makes your godliness into true gain. And that is no matter what you have or don't have. Let's pray.